This morning we are going to do something slightly unusual, although not unheard of in our church. We are going to read as a a precursor to the sermon text, uh, chapter 15 of John's Gospel. Chapter 15, not the entirety of that chapter, verses uh, 1 to 17 uh, will be uh, our text of preparation. And then we will read, uh, following uh, the passage from John 15, we will read from Matthew chapter 21, verses 17 to 22, which is our sermon text. So again, John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17 is our passage of preparation. And then our sermon text will be John chapter 21, verses 17 to 22. This is the word of God. Hear it, O children of God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should, be, should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And now turning to Matthew chapter 21, verses 17 to 22. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful to you as we have just read 
in our passages this morning that you called us, you chose us. We did not choose you. You appointed us, dear Lord, to bear fruit. And you have called us now this morning to worship you. We pray, dear Lord, that you would continue to call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that even through the preaching of your word and this passage this morning, that you would call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you call each of us, because we are all sinners, to repentance and faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now just to recap a little bit from last week's passage, we saw that Jesus paid a a visit to the temple. And as he went to the temple, he executed kingly judgment. He overturned the money changers' tables. He drove out all of those who were selling animals for the sacrifices that were going to take place at the Passover celebration. He ran out everyone who sold and who bought. And in so doing, Jesus was making a prophetic declaration that the worship of the temple, the sacrifices, the attendant prayers, all of those things were coming to an end. They They would come to an end. The worship of the people and the ministry of the priests had become unacceptable to God. They no longer were fulfilling their purpose, the intended purpose that God had created them for. The temple, it had all of the hustle and the bustle of religious activity. It had the appearance of worship, just as the fig tree in our passage had the appearance of life and fruitfulness. And yet upon closer inspection... As Jesus enters that temple, he finds no worship. No worship there, no fruit. Nothing is being produced. There was no uh, depth to their worship. It, was a, it was, had the appearance of worship, a superficiality, but there was no depth. And so we saw last week that the people honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And so as King Jesus, uh, as King Jesus' prophetic action in the court of the Gentiles, it was a judgment against the temple, against the priests and the people. It was against their worship of him. Because their worship was false, because the chief priests and the scribes were blind to Jesus as their God and their king, God raised up children to sing his praises. And then Jesus withdrew from the temple. And the next morning he carried out another prophetic act, this time against a fig tree. Now this passage, our passage this morning, it illustrates the importance of context. If you were to take this passage by itself, if you were to read it alone without any surrounding context or or even a recap of its context, what happens? It appears that Jesus is simply being vindictive against this fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. It makes very little sense all by itself, this passage. Taken by itself, it appears that Jesus is simply being destructive for destructiveness' sake. Maybe he's in a bad mood because he's hungry and it doesn't provide the food that he wants, and so he he lashes out in petty vindictiveness like a, a car owner whose car breaks down, kicks the tire in anger. But this is not the case. In the greater context of chapter 21... The passage is properly understood as a prophetic act of judgment against Judaism as a whole and the temple and its worship in particular. 
Well, as we work our way through this passage, I'd ask you to uh, consider this, that those who don't bear fruit, like the fig tree, will be cursed. But those who believe in Jesus Christ will bear fruit, especially the fruit of worship. Again, those who don't bear fruit, like the fig tree, will be cursed. But those who believe in Jesus Christ will bear fruit, especially the fruit of worship. We've divided this passage this week into two sections, verses 17 to 19, in search of fruit, and verses 20 to 22, faith yields fruit. In search of fruit, verses 17 to 19, and faith yields fruit, verses 20 to 22. Let's look now at verses 17 to 19. Following Jesus' cleansing of the temple in which he declared an end to the sacrificial system, an end to its form of worship, verse 17 says, And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The chief priests and the scribes had succeeded in causing the king to depart from his temple. The glory of the Lord had departed And Jesus would not even lodge in Jerusalem. He went outside its city limits. He went on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives and lodged there in this town of Bethany. Well, the next morning on Monday, Monday of the Passover week, Jesus and his disciples are returning to Jerusalem from Bethany. They're traveling west now, just a couple of miles that it is back into Jerusalem. And verse 18 says that as they went, Jesus became hungry. Now, Mark's gospel is the only other gospel of the four that recounts this cursing of the fig tree. And Mark uh, recounts uh, this particular uh, uh, miracle. It's what's known as a destructive miracle. He recounts it before the cleansing of the temple. He places the cleansing of the temple on the Passover, uh, Monday of Passover week. And so as Jesus, he's come into the city uh, on on Palm Sunday, riding on the back of the the colt of uh, of a donkey. He uh, departs from the town, and he comes back in on Monday. And on his way in to cleanse the temple, he passes this fig tree, finds no fruit, curses it, goes and cleanses the, the temple, retreats from the temple, and on his way back out of town, he passes the fig tree. The disciples see it and ask him what's going on. Matthew here, uh, for uh, whatever reason, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he puts it all together. It's on Monday. Jesus is going back into the city. And on his way, he's hungry. And he sees a fig tree from far off. The leaves are green. It's early spring, March or April. And Jesus expects to find some kind of fruit. Well, the differences between Mark and Matthew mainly serve to show the connectedness of this passage, the cursing of the fig tree, to the cleansing of the temple. That's how you understand this passage. They're intertwined in Mark. They're closely put together in Matthew. If you take them apart... This passage makes no sense. And so Jesus uh, was hungry, and verse 19 says, And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now trees are not an abundant part of the landscape in Israel. They're not all over the place the way they are even here in our part of Texas. It's a a barren place. But fig trees are cultivated there because they grow well, uh, grow best in moderately dry areas. They do well there. Fig trees provide shade as well as fruit. And they were regarded as a blessing from God. The fig tree came to symbolize in Israel God's covenant relationship with His people. 
particularly the promised blessings to Israel. That's what the fig tree sort of symbolizes here. But the fig tree and trees in general can symbolize Israel itself. In Micah chapter 7, verse 1, for instance, Israel is depicted as a fruitless fig tree to show both their moral and religious failure. It says there in that verse in Micah, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. God is looking upon Israel. There's no fruit. And while there's no direct allusion, direct reference to the passage in, in Micah, our passage is to be understood in light of Israel's failure to obey God in their worship. There's no fruit of worship in Israel. And so Jesus has become hungry. He spots uh, from a distance this fig tree, we can imagine. He sees its, uh, uh, its green leaves. And in Mark eleven thirteen, 13, we read that it was not the season for figs, being March or early April. Now, that is certainly the case. However, male fig trees produce a poor-tasting fruit. It's unpalatable when their first leaves appear in the spring. But for those who are truly hungry, they'll eat it. They still eat it today. And a male tree that does not produce this fruit, this early unpalatable fruit, it will not produce fruit later in the season when the proper fig comes out. It won't bear figs at all that year. And so Jesus went to this tree in search of fruit just as he went to the temple in search of worship. In both cases, he is inspecting. He's inspecting to see if there's good fruit. He wants to see if good fruit is being produced. And in neither case did he find any fruit at all. Well, the fig tree in this instance symbolizes Israel, particularly as she is at worship in the temple. And so as we see it this way, we understand that the cursing of the fig tree, it gives a clearer understanding of what Jesus did when he cast out the money changers, when he drove out those who were selling and buying animals. It makes sense now. It makes even uh, further sense to us what the passage that we uh, considered last week. This is a prophetic warning. Well, Jesus had already warned the people of the danger of unfruitfulness in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. He says there in verse 19, Every tree that, tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's warned them very early in his ministry. But even earlier, John the Baptist, in chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, he warns the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says this, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus warned in the passage that we read from John chapter 15 that every branch that does not bear fruit, it will die. His Father will take it away. And this happens because people are not abiding in him. These branches will wither and they will be thrown into the fire. Now Jesus is not being destructive for destructiveness' sake when he curses this tree. He's not being mean to this, uh, this tree. He's proving a point. Jesus curses the fig tree to give a visual representation of what took place in the temple the previous day. 
It is a visual representation of what will happen to Israel. It is a visual representation of what will happen to everyone who refuses to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as such, as a visible representation, as a visible warning, it is an act of mercy. Repent, for the kingdom is near. This is what Jesus is doing when he curses this tree. He is giving warning of coming judgment. It is not vindictiveness. It is mercy. Do you think Jesus really didn't know that there was no fruit on that tree? Jesus is continuing to give the warning that John the Baptist began back in chapter 3. The axe is still at the root of the tree. Jesus shows this. But the time is even nearer for Jesus, for his disciples, for those around him. The time is even nearer when all who, produce, who don't produce good fruit will be cut down and burned. And the time would come when even the bad fruit being produced at the temple would come to an end. In 40 years' time, this temple is going to be laid waste by the Romans. There will be no further worship that takes place in this temple ever again. To this day, there is no worship. The closest that they can come to the temple is the western wall where they pray and stuff pieces of paper in the cracks. The worship is gone. The glory has departed from the temple. Let this be a warning to us. We who are called God's people and called by His name, may we never depart into false worship. May we never be rebuked by the Lord because our worship is not as God has commanded it to be. May we never trust and lean upon our own understanding, but trust in the Lord alone, especially as it comes to worshiping Him. We must worship as God has commanded. Let's look now at verses 20 to 22. Faith produces fruit. Verse 20 says that the disciples marveled at what Jesus had done to the fig tree. He cursed it, and as verse 19 says, the fig tree withered at once. It was instantaneous. But their question isn't why he did it or what it meant. They maybe knew why he did it. Possibly they made the connection between the fig tree and the temple. Their question was one of wonderment of how he was able to do such a thing. They, maybe they were interested in the mechanics of it. How could Jesus do such a thing? And so the disciples asked, how did the fig tree wither at once? These disciples are coming up on the end of three years of intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they still don't understand that Jesus is God in the flesh. He has the power to create and he has the power to destroy. But we should cut them some slack. Understanding this, understanding who Jesus truly is, is a gift from God. And we'll see. As you work your way through, as we get ourselves to the end of this uh, gospel, you'll see that the disciples' lack of comprehension in this passage, it stands in stark contrast to how they are after Jesus is risen from the dead and after the gift of the Holy Spirit is sent to them in the book of Acts. They couldn't be more different. And so their lack of understanding here, the thickness that they have and not being able to understand how Jesus could do such a thing is overly compensated for. Later on in this gospel and in, in, in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. Well, to their question of how the, the tree withered so quickly, Jesus responded in verse 21, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, 
You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even as you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now you will remember that Jesus spoke similarly to the disciples back in chapter 17, verse 20. After he cast uh, this demon out of uh, this young boy, the disciples had been unable, completely unable to cast the demon out. And Jesus did it, and the disciples asked him how he could do such a thing. And so he told them, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, and you, you will say to this mountain, move from, there, from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As we saw back in that passage, we see today that the disciples' faith is still deficient. It's not that their faith is small. Their faith is simply lacking. It's a deficient faith. If they had, had faith uh, uh, the size of a mustard seed, they could have understood exactly how Jesus was able to, to wither this fig tree. And so they couldn't imagine doing something like casting, uh, causing a fig tree to wither, much less something as dramatic as casting a mountain into uh, a sea. The one was just as impossible for them as the other. But the withering of the fig tree, as much as the moving of a mountain, shows that with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Moving mountains... This phrase that we still use today, it was a Jewish metaphor used for, for accomplishing something that was virtually impossible. When they would do something that was amazingly difficult, they would say, we've moved a mountain. And we still sometimes say that today. And here Jesus seems to be making an allusion to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 to 9. Whereas Zerubbabel, who was a, 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 a descendant of David... Uh, his obstacles in building the temple, he'd come back after exile, he was building the temple, his obstacles in building this temple were compared to a mountain, perhaps Mount Zion. And we're promised in Zechariah chapter 4 in these verses that the Spirit of God would bring the mountain down, he'd bring these obstacles down. And so like his ruling ancestors Zerubbabel, Jesus was to prepare a new temple. And it was seemingly impossible this work that Jesus would do. He was mocked when he said he would build a new temple in three days' time. But he would do this. He would build this temple by giving his life. Jesus, by his death, will make the temple and its functions obsolete. Already the axe was laid to the root of the tree. But when Jesus gave his life, the blood of goats and bulls was no longer, it no longer served a purpose. It was no longer acceptable. Because he had built a new temple, the temple of his body. These sacrifices, they no longer served a purpose. They had long been pointing to Christ's death on the cross. Now that he's died, now that he's been sacrificed, sacrificed as the Passover lamb, no further blood ought to be shed. And it would soon come to an end. By his death, Jesus will bring out about a new way to worship God, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. It matters not the location. It matters not whether you're in a temple or in a gymnasium. You worship God in spirit and in truth. And so in His talk of moving mountains, Jesus is saying that for the God who called the very mountains into existence by the power of His voice, nothing is impossible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nothing is impossible for God. And by having faith in Him, He will do what is impossible through His followers. 
He did the impossible through his disciples. He will do the impossible through you. This is his promise. He will cause you, he will cause me to bear good fruit. And the fruit you will bear, it depends upon whom you depend upon. If you abide in Christ, as he says in John 15, 5, you will bear much fruit and it will be good. And the primary fruit that you will bear, we understand from the context of our passage in Matthew, the primary fruit that you will bear is the fruit of true worship. What was formerly impossible for you? What is impossible for the flesh? What is impossible for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ is now possible for you who believe. Try to get your head around this for a moment. We are in the presence of God. This is holy ground, not because it's some special building. It isn't. It's holy ground because God is here with us. This is a special place. And this is an amazing time for us. You will bear this fruit if you abide in Jesus Christ. But if you don't depend on Christ, if you refuse to abide in Him by believing in Him, you will bear no fruit. You will wither like the fig tree. You will be torn down like the temple. But be encouraged. Verse 22, Jesus encourages his disciples. In light of what he has told them about having faith and not doubting, he says in verse 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Whatever you ask, if you have faith, you will receive it. This is a promise meant to encourage you in your prayers, to come before the Lord. You have access to Him. It's a great privilege. Don't forsake it. Don't neglect it. Pray to the Lord. Pour out your heart to Him. And by all means, come to the Lord on the Lord's Day as we worship Him as a family, as a people of God, as we gather together. Jesus encourages His disciples to pray. To pray. And what is prayer but an acknowledgement of our utter dependence upon God? When you come to the Lord, and people do, people pray to the Lord who don't even believe in Him. Oh God, help me. In moments of deepest despair and greatest fear, the biggest pagan will send up a prayer in the hopes that God will hear it. It is an acknowledgement of dependence. It flows from faith, true prayer does. And if we don't pray, if we don't pray, we think we can do it all ourselves. Our lack of prayer is the result of thinking that I can handle this on my own. If you think of yourself as self-sufficient, you don't think you need anybody else, including God, but you are deluding yourself. You are dependent upon God in ways that you refuse to acknowledge. You refuse to acknowledge your own need and are denying the fact that God upholds you by His hand if you refuse to pray to Him. Now we've seen around here in the last several months, several months in a very small way in our area how dependent we are on rain. 
To date, humanity has found no effective way to make it rain on demand. I know there are attempts at cloud seeding and there seems to be some sort of success, but we cannot make it rain on demand. And so we here have suffered some effects of drought, not like the ranchers, not like the farmers who are utterly dependent upon it, but in some small ways we've seen what drought means, what it looks like. We've seen our dependence upon rain. Like a tree, you are dependent upon the water that rains down from heaven. Like rain, God pours his grace down upon all people, but he pours down his special grace upon his children, his special favor upon those whom he loves. And if you have faith in Christ, he promises that you will bear fruit. Without faith in him, it's impossible to bear fruit, and you will dry up and wither, but with faith in Christ... You will bear fruit, primarily the fruit of worship. Through faith in Christ, the impossible will be done through you. You will grow and flourish in your faith, and you will walk with Christ all of your days. By God's Spirit dwelling in you, you will be able to do things that were formerly impossible for you to do, and the primary fruit... The fruit that you will bear, the fruit that you are bearing right now this morning in worship is true worship. This is not something you can do on your own strength. It is a gift of God. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, details a few other fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are fruit that you will bear. These are fruit that you are already bearing if you are abiding in Christ in faith. You may not be aware of it. In many ways, we hope you're blind to the fact that you're bearing fruit so you won't be tempted to pride. But these are real fruits, just like the fruit of worship and just as impossible for you to bear without the Spirit of Christ living in your heart. You will produce other fruits as well. But if you don't believe in him, if you don't trust in Christ, you will produce only bad fruit. And you'll have no hope. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ. Trust in him. He promises in his word that you will bear fruit. You will abide in him. And that you will see his face and his true glory in a way that the people at that temple that day refused to see. You will see him as he truly is. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful to you. We're thankful that you have called us. You've called us out of a life of sin and darkness. You've called us, Lord, into your glorious light. And you have enabled us by your Spirit to bear fruit, especially, O Lord, the fruit of worship. We thank you now, O Lord, that all who trust in you, all of us here who are trusting in Christ, we're bearing fruit. And we pray that you would continue to cause us to bear fruit. Lord, cause us to abide even more fully in you. We pray for those, Lord, who are struggling. We pray for those, Lord, who are faltering and they're abiding in Christ. And we 
We ask, Lord, that you would build them up and cause within them and from them to flow the fruit of faith. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. A hymn of response is hymn number 630.